Our readings for today, there are two of them. The first comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Jonah, from the third chapter, verses 1 through 5 and 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, from the first chapter, verses 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. May God bless this reading to our hearing and understanding. The most well-known image from the book of Jonah is that of Jonah inside the whale, probably something that many of you remember from Sunday school lessons or from children's Bible movies. But our text today comes after Jonah's experience in the great fish. The book of Jonah, though it's quite short, is really fascinating primarily because it's hard to classify just what it is or understand what purpose it serves in our canon. In the Hebrew scriptures, Jonah is classified as one of the 12 minor prophets. But as prophets go, the book is pretty unique in several ways. Its structure is that of a narrative, rather than the collections of prophecies that we typically find in other prophetic books. And instead of the serious tone of the major prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it is surprising and humorous, exaggerated to extremes. But perhaps the most distinctive thing that separates Jonah from the rest of the prophets is the outcome of his prophecy. It works. It seems simple, but a defining mark of the Hebrew prophets is that they are not listened to, and they suffer greatly from having to prophesy. Jeremiah speaks at length about this difficulty. 
He says, I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But Jonah is immediately successful in what God asks of him. He comes into the city and presents his prophecy in one sentence. And in the very next verse, the people, including the king, have all changed their ways and devoted their lives to God. And while other prophets predict disaster for Israel that does indeed come to pass, here God does what seems unthinkable. God's mind is changed. Jonah actually leaves the city to find a perch on a hill from which to watch the city's destruction, but though he waits, it does not come. Jonah would seem to be the most effective prophet in Hebrew history. And yet, as we find if we read on, he is not pleased. He is distraught, angry at God, and wishing for death because the city will not be destroyed after all. The story seems ridiculous, and yet I think that Jonah is remarkably human. Maybe he is upset because he wanted to feel superior to the Ninevites and is jealous that they have received the same mercy that God provided him. Maybe he's concerned that his reputation might suffer or that he'll look like he was wrong or lying. Maybe it feels like he walked all that way and went through all that difficulty for nothing. Despite the fact that he was treated with respect and taken seriously from the moment he started speaking, and that his proclamation led to an entire city changing their actions and ultimately saved all their lives, even so, he ends up sulking, disappointed, feeling like he has been a failure and this whole adventure has been for nothing. What was Jonah's definition of success? It seems as though the outcome that he really wanted was the destruction of Nineveh. So what was he hoping that his role in warning them would accomplish? In her analysis of this passage, Donna Shaper asks, how would we measure if our church were a successful congregation for the next period of time? How would we know? If we felt good? If we made our own choices? or if we had a driving vocation to matter to someone else besides ourselves? If Jonah measured his success by his control over what was to happen, or by whether he came off as a trustworthy mouthpiece of God, or by whether the outcome was what he expected, then maybe he was unsuccessful. But he made a difference. He made a connection with people helped save people's lives, and everything was better off for it. While scripture often demonstrates the weakness and the failings of humanity compared to the amazing grace of God's undeserved mercy, there are also a few instances, and this Jonah passage is one of them, where we find a story in which one faithful person makes a choice that has massive ripple effects. One action is able to change the course of history and to provide justice, healing, or safety for many. But our hero here isn't one bold, dedicated person setting out to make the biggest change he can. He's doing what God has told him to do, 
rather begrudgingly and even arrogantly, and assuming from the moment he begins that it will have no impact. Jonah's trials and tribulations up to this point have led him to finally believe and trust in God's power and mercy for him, and yet he does not expect for a moment that that mercy will be extended to others, or that there is any hope for a change from the great city of Nineveh. Richard Boyce points out the severe irony in that Jonah is supposed to be from Israel, God's chosen people, and himself a prophet chosen by God, and yet he acts as if he does not know God at all. By contrast, the Ninevites, the people who we are told are wicked and doomed to destruction and who know nothing of the God of Israel, do not hesitate for a moment to believe not only in God's power and control, but in their own ability to bring about change in their circumstances and to receive God's mercy and forgiveness. After all this time, Jonah has still gone into the city relying entirely on his preconceptions about Nineveh and about the impossibility of societal change. And as a result, he is dismayed at the outcome, even though he should be pleased about how influential he was. Our second passage for today provides a narrative mirror to the first. Jesus approaches the three fishermen and asks them to follow him. And in a manner as astounding as that of the Ninevites, the men drop everything they are doing and simply agree. There is no preamble, no explanation, just pure trust, a moment of decision with infinitely lasting impact. These young men, we are told, leave behind everything. Families, careers, meaningful work for their survival and livelihoods, And they just go on the promise that Jesus gives them, that they will be able to fish for people. These men had no reason to believe in their own ability to have a spiritual impact in the world, and no expectations of what it would even mean to fish for people. But they dropped their nets and followed him. To say that that choice changed their own lives is obvious, but one cannot overstate the impact that this had on the entire development of the world to come. Being raised in the Jewish faith, they'd go on to sometimes clash with Jesus because they believed him to be the Messiah, but he didn't do what many expected the Messiah to do. There was no military uprising, no grand taking back of the throne of David, no majesty or royalty. And it all ended with a criminal's death on the cross and all his followers scattered and afraid. But despite misunderstanding, despite not knowing what to expect, they followed. And they never stopped believing in their ability to make a difference. And it is because of the faith of those early followers that the church began, because of them that the news of Jesus spread across the world, and because of them that we are worshiping here and in this way today. Jesus begins this passage by proclaiming that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. In the very choice that these first disciples make to be flexible, open to change, and uncertainty, they, bring, they begin to bring God's kingdom to fruition. The fishermen on that day, just like the residents of Nineveh, did what Jonah could not They not only accepted God's call, but opened their minds to the reality that they could actually do what was being asked of them. 
They put their trust not only in the mercy, power, everlasting love, and support of God, but also in themselves and their ability to impact the world for the better. But even more, they were willing to abandon any idea that they could retain control over the consequences of those actions. It is this call that speaks to me the most strongly from these readings today. We are individuals made in God's image with agency and power to impact the world around us for worse or for better. But in doing so, we need to relinquish our hold on our own plans, on our own desire for control. We might need to be okay with the fact that the impacts of the change we bring are not completely up to us. And we might need to let go of the skepticism that tells us that nothing we do will make a difference. What might it mean for our ministry if we responded to God's call, but we did so with an open mind, knowing that it might actually work, that the world might actually be made better, that our perceptions might have to change in the process, that we might not come out the hero? What if God's justice means we need to be prepared to take responsibility for our own failings or to abandon our own incorrect beliefs. As an American, viewing this week's historic inauguration after so much turmoil, there was, at least for me, a lot of conflicting emotion. Calls for unity in our divided nation pitted against cries for accountability. Celebration of the continued system of democracy at the same time as we commit ourselves to the tearing down of unjust systems. Praise and honoring of the beautiful parts of our nation's legacy against dismayed and shameful remembrances of that same legacy. There is so much to hope for in our nation's future and yet so much still to fear, to disagree over, to stumble on, to be unsure how to proceed. Especially after the experiences of 2020, we stand at a crossroads where it seems that both great change and settling for the status quo are paths available to us. And it is up to us to take action for God's justice, knowing full well that we will not be in control of the ripples that follow. When we find ourselves on the precipice of change with the potential for real progress and justice and love, we need to be conscious of what it will take to achieve that and what we are willing to give up. Credit for being right, power or privilege that we have enjoyed, grudges against those with different beliefs than ours, our own moral convictions that we are not at fault for the systems we have supported and benefited from, how will we measure our success? In the inaugural poem this week, National Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman said, and yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge a union with purpose. If Jonah's tale teaches us anything in 2021, may it be that we as individuals, imperfect people, prone to fear, running from responsibility, we still have the power to affect change with purpose. But that does not mean that doing so will be easy. 
We will not be perfect, and it may be hard for us when that purpose conflicts with our own desires or our securities. But we must always act, striving to show others that we truly do know God, and we know the mercy and love that is available not just to us, but to all. What if we allowed ourselves to believe that we truly could form a more perfect union, could begin to fulfill God's kingdom here on earth? That world that we create might not look exactly like what each of us wants it to, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe there are possibilities that those of us in positions of privilege, sitting atop our hill looking over Nineveh, cannot possibly imagine. If we can only be like Simon and Andrew and James and John and step out into the unknown, ready to work for change, but also ready to be surprised, to be proven wrong, and to not always be the most important person in the room. Maybe the kingdom of God is being fulfilled here and now, after all. Amen.